Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. The Lord be with you, Tulare Community Church. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at TCC. Hey, we're continuing in our sermon series today that's focused on the liturgical season of Lent. Lent stretches for 40 days, beginning on Ash Wednesday and finishing on Easter Sunday. Lent is a season of mourning. It's a season of lament. It's a season of repentance, as Pastor Shane showed us last week. It's a season of self-reflection. During Lent, we look at what holds court in our lives, what holds sway over our decisions. What do we cling to for comfort, whether that's conscious or subconscious? We have a parable from the Gospel of Luke today that will force us to answer that question. Listen now to the word of the Lord from Luke 16, verses 1 to 15. It says this, Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in, and he asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job, my job, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill Sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. And he told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, Or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's Sight. Friends, this is the word of the Lord, and we say thanks be to God. All right, so let's set the scene. Uh, we've got a wealthy master and the manager who runs his estate. 
And the master says, give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. And so the manager goes and he makes some backroom deals. And it says in verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. So we can ask, what in the world is going on here? Uh, anyone? Because uh, I've been trying to load this parable on somebody else's shoulders all week. And for some reason, nobody believed that I had a Sunday morning dental appointment. It's weird. Uh, I read a lot about this passage, and pretty much only one refrain was constant. This is one of the most difficult parables to understand in the New Testament. Awesome. Uh, What I do know is that this passage is ultimately about worship. Uh, But more on that in a minute. Um, Since we're already here, we we might as well make our best effort at figuring out what's going on. Okay, so we have some stuff that's about stewardship. We are looking at uh, the posture of the heart And then we're going to end with a master. And that's going to be our flow. We have stewardship, heart posture, and a master. Now, this parable, affectionately known as the parable of the shrewd or dishonest manager, has a lot to say about money. Uh, And it's also sandwiched in between two other parables that deal with money as well. Now, we have the case of the prodigal son in which a young man squanders all that he has, but he's welcomed back with open arms by his father. And then we have the case of the rich man and Lazarus, and we have an example of Jesus' words when he says the last will be first and the first will be last. And as we look at the parable of the shrewd manager, it's important to recognize that we have just that. We have a parable. It's not an allegory with hidden or symbolic meanings. It's not an example story where we're told to go and do likewise. This is a short, fictitious story that illuminates a spiritual truth. The spiritual truth that's at play? Well, we've got the manager of a rich man's estate who's been accused of wasting his master's possessions. And as we've seen, when confronted by his master, the manager says, shoot. I'm too weak for manual labor, and I'm too proud to beg. I know. I'll pull a fast one on my master. Now, the manager goes and reduces the debts of his master's debtors, ensuring that he had some leverage if he needed it, while also ensuring that his master will only make 50 cents on the dollar. The master is, of course, furious, right? has to be. It says in verse 8, as we've looked at, The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. So, obviously... Oh, wait a second. Oh, shoot. Got me again, right? So, hold on a second. You're telling us, Jesus, you're telling us that this sneaky, blackmailing manager who's cheating his master out of collecting on what's his, you're telling us, Jesus, this guy was just given a slap on the back and an attaboy? Jesus says, continues to say in the passage, that the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. He says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. 
See, this is such a confusing and flabbergasting parable because the spiritual truth that we're looking at here of this part of the parable actually has to do with adaptability. In Matthew 10, 16, Jesus says that I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. The gospel does not state that a Christian is to enter the world and be taken advantage of by the world at every turn. And I think that there's a tendency within the church to be so concerned about being kind as to have the wool pulled over one's eyes. Jesus is not advocating for wannabe martyrs who who think that the most faithful thing is just to lie down and play dead. No, he's saying learn something from the people of this world. The manager in our parable is quick on his feet. His initial reaction is not resignation, but adaptability. And if Jesus is sending his church out like sheep among wolves, then adaptability is not optional. It's mandatory. Imagine for a moment the missionaries around the world who are called into countries where Christianity is illegal. They've undergone training, education. They receive their apartment to go, their assignment to go to Nepal, where it's illegal to be a Christian missionary. Now, do they say, well, the rules say no, so, well, I guess better luck next time. No! I have a friend, in fact, who is a full-time missionary with YWAM who began a coffee shop in the country where he was sent because he couldn't have entered the country as a Christian missionary. Shrewd as a snake and innocent as a dove. The Greek word there and here for shrewd that Jesus uses is phronomos, prudent, wise. Be wise with what, you, what has been given to you. Be prudent with your resources. Our theology of God's providence tells us that he sustains all things and that he provides for all that we need. So what you have is always ultimately a gift. Steward it well, Jesus says. We cannot lose sight of the importance of what God has given us here and now. Lent reminds us that there is an abundance of pain in the world. There is spiritual pain. People are lost. They're searching, seeking the truth. But there's also physical pain. Jesus calls us to steward the resources we have to meet this pain, to be adaptable. We cannot neglect our worldly responsibilities in favor of expectation of what is to come. Verses 10 and 11 say, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Now, I, uh, I might be a little biased here, but the Care Portal presentation that we're listening to in person was pretty fantastic. We are hard-pressed to find a more tangible way to wisely, prudently, and mercifully steward what we have than something like Care Portal. But I find it interesting how much of a contrast there is between the stewardship of the manager in our story and the stewardship of Care Portal. It's because the manager is shrewd in that he's looking after his own well-being. But Care Portal is shrewd in its service of others. 
There's a fundamental difference at the root of these two motivations. Verses 14 and 15 say this, The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this, and they were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. What is the posture of our hearts? What I mean by that is what internal locus drives our approach to others? What motivation orients our stewardship? What is the posture of our hearts? In the case of the manager, it's simple. He says, well, I've been caught and I need an escape valve. I know I'll lower the debts of my master's debtors. Now, is the manager's heart posture altruistic? Does he care about other people? Are his stewardly actions driven by his concern for others? Or is he commended for shrewdness because he looked after himself? Now, no group in the New Testament made Jesus quite as angry as the Pharisees, just talking to them. And it was known that the Pharisees would make large public displays of their piety, their righteousness. They wanted everybody to see. In all likelihood, Jesus was talking about the Pharisees when he says in Matthew 6, uh, verse 5, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Now, is the posture of their hearts one of inspiration? Do they hope to demonstrate piety to others and spur them on to do the same? Jesus says to them in our passage, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. They're making an external display for external justification, but God knows their hearts. As Pastor Shane preached about last week, we are just like the Pharisees if we think that we are any better. One of the scariest reminders that we get in Lent is that God knows our hearts too. If we're honest, which Lent demands us to be, What's in our own hearts is actually quite a bit more frightening than it is reassuring. When the endless pop culture, media-driven, postmodernistic rhetoric tells us that we need to only follow our hearts, do we really know how dangerous that is? John Calvin famously said that man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. An idol implies worship, and if it is in our nature to produce idols, and our heart posture has a natural bent towards worship, but what we worship are things made of the very same dust that you and I are made of. The Israelites, they worshipped a golden calf. The Pharisees, worshipping holier-than-thou piety. And in America today, we worship ourselves. This is not just a religious notion. The atheist essayist David Foster Wallace, say that three times fast, put it this way. He said, here's just one example of the total wrongness of something I tend to be automatically sure of. Everything in my immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe. The realist, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural 
basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us. It is our default setting hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There is no experience you have had that you are not the absolute center of. The world, as you experience it, is there in front of you or behind you, to the left or right of you, on your TV or your monitor, and so on. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you uh, somehow, but your own are so immediate, urgent, and real. With this heart posture, we too would commend the manager in our parable for his shrewdness, right? He was only looking out for numero uno, and his heart posture was oriented towards himself, and his stewardship followed suit, right? And as David Foster Wallace points out, it's a natural subconscious belief to place ourselves in the center of the universe. This is an extremely Western idea, but we can say about the manager, well, who can blame, who can blame the poor guy, right? If our stewardship is based on the posture of our hearts, And the posture of our hearts has a natural bent towards idolatry. And if the most prominent idol is ourselves and our own well-being, then ultimately we are our own masters. I mean, right? I don't think anything sums this up quite as perfectly as William Ernest Henley's poem Invictus that finishes, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That sounds pretty good, right? You want to talk about affirmation. But the reality is that the posture of our hearts, the way that we steward, they are out of our control because their orientation is a natural outpouring of a decision that we do, in fact, have control over. And that decision is who or what will we worship, who or what will be our master. In the case of our parable, the master of the manager isn't even his actual master. The manager has chosen to worship security. His master is money. And his master has determined the posture of his heart, which has determined the way he has stewarded his resources. The manager worships the dust. Now, we too, we we have a choice. Jesus says in verse 13, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus is laying it all out for us to see. We can choose God or we can choose money. We can choose God or security. We can choose beauty or we can choose dust. But we can only have one master. And as we've seen, the master that we serve determines everything else. 
Continuing in his commencement speech, uh, the same atheist essayist, David Foster Wallace, puts it this way. He says, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel that you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. They're the kind of worship that you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. The master we serve determines the posture of our hearts. And the posture of our hearts determines the way that we steward what we have. And so we have a choice. And our parable gives us a choice, a spiritual truth. Will we serve the money, things, and values of this world that live only as we give them our lives? Or will we serve the God who died so that we might live. We serve the forever unsatisfied master that demands more and more and will leave us by the curb when the demands can finally never be met. Or will we serve the God who knows our hearts, sinful as they might be, and is still utterly satisfied with us, not because of what we can do or what we're capable of, but because of what he has done for us. If our master is Jesus Christ, then our heart posture will reflect the sacrificial love that he poured out on the cross. And if our heart posture is one of sacrificial love, then our stewardship will be the same. We will no longer seek our own welfare above and beyond all else, but we'll seek the welfare of all else, the poor, the marginalized, the abused, the addicted, the hurting, above and beyond ourselves. That will be the way we steward as we model our master. The choice is yours, beauty or ashes. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.